Hey folks, this is Mike with Battles of the First World War podcast. Joining us again today is Dr. Allison Finkelstein, here to discuss her book titled Forgotten Veterans, Invisible Memorials, How American Women Commemorated the Great War, 1917 through 1945. Forgotten Veterans, Invisible Memorials tells the story of the American women who participated in the United States' war effort during World War I and how they, quote, considered their own community service and veteran advocacy to be forms of commemoration just as significant and effective as other more traditional forms of commemoration, such as memorials, end quote. Using the term veteranism to describe these women's approach to wartime and post-war care for those men and women who served and sacrificed for their country during the war, Dr. Finkelstein's work tells an important story. It is the story of American women who served their country during the Great War, many of whom would not be recognized for that service, and how they continued post-war to serve and care for American veterans as acts of living commemoration. So let's introduce Dr. Finkelstein. So directly from her website, Allison S. Finkelstein earned her PhD in U.S. history from the University of Maryland, College Park, where she also studied historic preservation. Dr. Finkelstein previously worked as a historian for the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services History Office and Library, and as a historical consultant at both the American Battle Monuments Commission and the United States of America Vietnam War Commemoration Office. As a public historian, her projects have included the creation of museum exhibits, publications, interpretive programs, education programs, documentary films, webinars, tours, and narration for military processions. A specialist on World War I, her first book, Forgotten Veterans and Visible Memorials, was published by the University of Alabama Press in August 2021 and released in paperback in September 2023. The Mid-Atlantic Regional Archives Conference awarded this book the 2022 Arlene Custer Memorial Award for the best book written in the Mid-Atlantic region. Dr. Finkelstein, welcome and thank you for coming on the podcast again. Thank you so much for having me. It's really an honor to be back and I'm just excited to be able to talk about these amazing women with your audience. So thank you. Yeah. So something that that I think of a lot of times, um, I, I wrote here in the notes I shared with you is a, a thought exercise I, I like to have on more than just on occasion is like what what happens after the movie ends? So like what becomes of the characters and like how do their lives go on afterwards? You know, so um, so I thought of your your really excellent book. Um, I thought it was a deep exploration of American women's post World War One service and continued work um, honoring the men and women who had served during the war. Um, and it shows that all the way through and even like beyond the, the World War Two years, the women who answered the call of service during World War One, they went on doing their work. They continued on always with generally like one thought in mind, like how to best care and advocate for those who had served uh, when their country called uh, men and women both. So it's it really to me is like, you know, what happened when the doughboys came home um, and the hello girls and the nurses, like 
Well, this this is what happened. These these women went on working. It's like it's really amazing, amazing to me. I should have had you write the blurb for my book. You have done such a great job capturing it. And I've never thought about it in that way again, but how you articulated it as what happens after the end of movie, the movie, it's such a spot on insightful way to talk about what the book says. I, I really, I really just love that. So thank you. Thank you. Um, so we'll, we'll get into these questions. And so, you know, noted in your, in your bio that um, you are a, a specialist in World War One. So um, what drew you to study the First World War? This is a story that I love telling over and over again because it involves a really special experience in my life with some special people that I'm still friends with to this day. Um, after college, I had this incredible opportunity to go spend a year as a teaching assistant at an English boarding school. The school is Lord Wandsworth College. It's in Hampshire. It's only about nine kilometers from Jane Austen's house at Chawton College for cottage, excuse me, for any Jane Austen fans out there. Oh. Um, it was it was just an amazing experience. So I mostly spent my time and as an assistant in the history department and I did a little bit with the drama department and then I also had some boarding school duties which um, created some great stories maybe not for this podcast but immersed in this school as the only American and really embedded in their history department I got to learn firsthand about World War One with these secondary school age children and as I'm sure a lot of your listeners are aware, the memory of World War One is still so strong in Great Britain. And the curriculum for middle, for the equivalent of middle and high schoolers over there really has a lot of focus on the history of World War One, its impact on Britain, and especially the World War One poetry. And a lot of schools in Britain will take their students on field trips to France and Belgium for the World War One battlefields. It's, you know, we go to Gettysburg, and Mount Vernon, they hop across the channel in a school bus and they go to France. Ugh. So I was steeped in this for a year um, with my colleagues who I just remain wonderful friends with today. I, I was able to see some of them in England over the fall. We, um, we commemorated Remembrance Day and Remembrance Sunday in Britain. I was wearing the poppy. We had a service at the school. They brought in all sorts of amazing resources like reenactors. And then in the spring, we actually went over to Ypres and the Somme. And it was just a life-changing experience to be a, a teaching assistant, a teacher, and teach these students, but do it from an American perspective. And um, my boss, Peter, hello, Peter, if you're out there listening, um, he gave me a lot of really amazing opportunities on that trip. He asked me if I could find any American graves at the cemeteries we were going to, and I was able to actually find some isolated American graves at some Commonwealth War Graves Commission cemeteries. And I took the students to those graves, and this was before the age of, you know, instant Amazon all around the world, and I could not get any mini American flags. I wanted to put an American flag at these graves, so I ended up trying to draw American flags and tape them together. It was good enough. Um, but with the students, I put those little homemade flags on the graves, um, tried to teach them a little bit about America and World War I while we focused on the British. And then when we went to the Menin Gate, 
the students, each time they go, they get to place a wreath um, during the last post ceremony. And because I was so into this, um, my boss, Peter, let me join one of the kids and go up and lay the wreath with that student, which was one of the most moving experiences to be there as a lone American among a group of British school children and teachers and hear the last post played and see those thousands of names of the unknown inscribed on the Menin Gate. And after that trip, which I could talk to you about for hours, I, I was completely sucked in. And I came home later that year. I went to graduate school thinking I was going to be an early American historian. And while I still love early American history, I couldn't help myself. I just started shifting to World War I. And the question in my mind was a question that had really fascinated me in England. Why are the British and the French and the Belgians so much more in touch with this memory of World War I? Why is it so much more alive, but Americans are not as deeply connected to it? And that question, which was way too big for a dissertation, was what I thought my dissertation would initially be about. And then I eventually narrowed it and narrowed it and narrowed it. But it was really that year in England that just drew me in. That's, that's quite an experience. Yeah, it, it is like, a, um, you know, I, I know that in um, England and, and Great Britain and France, like it, it's World War One, you know, in in. In Russia, it's the memory of World War II, you know, the the Great Patriotic War, and um, you know, with us here, it's World War II as well. Um, but I, I often, um, when I talk to people about World War One, like I, I often that subject comes up too. Like, like, why do we remember World War II more than World War One? And um, I sometimes think it's it's for the reason of, um, well, in in France, Great Britain, and Belgium, like they've got the land to remind them, the the places. Um, and then the the gosh man, the human cost of it, you know, and um and with us, you know, we 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 certainly suffered and and nearly a hundred twenty thousand doughboys did did not come home. Um but you know, as compared to France, you know, and, and Britain, it was it was a much, you know, much heavier toll for them. Um and we didn't, you know, we didn't suffer as much as as they did, like just just to be fair. So it's yeah, it's quite quite a thing. Menin Gate, uh, what a ceremony! Uh, I was there in twenty twenty two, and um, they were having a little like festival in downtown Ypres, and uh, they had thumping techno music playing all day with the rides for the kids. And uh, but it was amazing. At ten minutes till eight, and in the evening, the music came off, and wow. the whole wow. town went silent for that ceremony. It's very very moving. Oh, that's that's such such a cool experience to to teach um over in England for a year. Wow. That's that's so cool. Um so you had, you know, your your big topic for your dissertation and, and you're whittling it down. Um and so you focused on I'm gonna go ahead and make a point here over my shoulder. That's Dr. Finkelstein's book right here. Um so how did you get onto the subject of of these these women um who who worked d during the war and and their and their continued work post-war i think like a lot of other historians it was a roundabout route and it it started 
when I had the opportunity to do some internships during graduate school with the American Battle Monuments Commission. And I'm sure your listeners are familiar with them, um, but if anybody isn't, it's the American federal government agency that operates the overseas memorials and cemeteries. Um, so I, I had this incredible opportunity to intern with them and do a lot of great primary source research. And then miraculously, they sent three of us interns over to France for two weeks to the Muse Argonne, uh, which was pretty ama pretty amazing and another another truly life-changing experience. Um, and as part of that research, I started doing a lot of work about the Gold Star Mothers and Widows pilgrimages. Um, and those were these government-sponsored trips in the 1930s, from 1930 to 1933, that sent the mothers and widows of service members who were buried overseas or whose bodies were never recovered to the cemeteries in France and England and Belgium to be able to go and visit those graves or the memorials where their loved one's name was commemorated. And it's this really fascinating program. I'm happy to talk more about it later on in our session today. But I knew I wanted to research something about that and there was great scholarship to build upon um, Bodies of War by Lisa Boudreaux is, is just a fantastic book. And as I dove into that book and I looked at the primary source research, I stumbled across these images of these funny little craftsman style houses at the cemeteries. They just looked so out of place. And I thought, okay, well, this is interesting. And I was in a historic preservation program as well as a history program. So I, I did a research paper on those houses and it went somewhere and I said, okay, this can definitely be part of a dissertation, but what, what else do I want to say about women? I narrowed it to women and how they commemorated World War I. I had these pilgrimages, but what else do I want to say? And as I got into the archives, particularly the National Archives and the Women's Memorial um, in Arlington, the Women's Memorial, their records, which are just incredible and not really used enough, I started to find all these examples of women who had somehow served in the war. Some of them were considered veterans, some of them were not, which we'll probably get into later, but they were doing some really unique types of commemorative activities. And I thought at first I'd be looking at women building memorials, but as I listened to what the women in the primary sources were saying, they were talking about memorials that were not actually statues or monuments. They were talking about projects that were much more avant-garde, and I hadn't seen anything written about that. So good little graduate student that I was, I said, okay, this is something that is maybe different. Professors said to pick something different. Let me start diving into these women and see where they take me. And it was really their voices from the archives that led me to the more narrow topic. Wow, that's, that's really cool. Um... So your your approach to the women's commemorative service after World War One is through the your term veteranism. Um, can you can you talk about that? Yes, thank you. Veteranism is a term that I came up with at the insistence of my advisor from graduate school, Dr. Severo Giovacchini, 
who realized quite wisely that my explanation for the types of memorials these women were making was way too wordy. And I needed to create what he called a neologism, a word that could more succinctly and more eloquently explain what I was saying okay. to really give a name to their philosophies. So it's not a name that these women ever used. It's something I made up, came from my head. I don't want anybody to think that this is what they called it. But sometimes as historians and writers, we need to think of a description to help the reader understand what we're saying. So we came up with the word veteranism or a word to describe the women themselves. We call them veteranists. And the idea here is that listening to what the women themselves said in their writings, these women believed that the best way to commemorate World War I or any war was not to spend money and time and energy creating statuary monuments, things like memorials or plaques or big looming monuments. They thought that instead the best way to commemorate the war, um, to paraphrase them, was to help the living. So they decided to do living memorials, which was a term that they did not invent or create. Those had been around for years, um, but they took it a little step further. So a living memorial is any type of memorial that has a utilitarian purpose. And sometimes in scholarship, you'll also see it be called a utilitarian memorial. So often these are things like bandstands, um, stadiums. So for example, I'm not a baseball person, but Soldiers Field in Chicago, that's a living memorial. Is it um, really? Is it, yes, it's, it's, really, it's really cool. And I'm sure your Chicago baseball fans can tell you a lot about it. Um, but it was meant to honor the service members from World War I in a way that would help the community through a, a baseball stadium. And it's beautiful. Um, so bandstands, stadiums, buildings and these veteranist women did all of those things but they also took it a step further with community service and advocacy work so they considered projects that had nothing tangible attached to them projects that were really actually invisible to be memorials in and of themselves and and that's really where the invisible memorials part of the book title came from that these women were so impacted by the devastation of World War I, and many of them, as we'll talk about, had direct connections to that war, that they could not stomach just putting up another memorial. Now, that doesn't mean that they completely rejected all types of statuary memorials. Some of them did a little of that. They mixed and matched. It was, you know, one step forward, one step backward. But at the core of their philosophy was that they had to do something to help others, to help the living particularly veterans, male and female veterans, unrecognized female veterans, which I think we'll get to, and the families of veterans. And by when you mentioned like some of these um, in invisible memorials and, and um, caring for the living, like it just, just to help like paint a picture, it's, it's going on caring for those 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 heavily wounded and and like disabled doughboys that came back for example right who will you know who have limited mobility or li limited use of their bodies now like they're they're you know when again like like when when the movie ends and the credits roll like those those guys you know they're, they're going to need help transitioning into this post-war world is is that what what you mean by by like these invisible living memorials 
That's exactly what I mean. And the women didn't just stop with the male veterans. They looked at their families, families who were struggling to support themselves when the breadwinner came home severely injured or, or mentally incapacitated. So they did all sorts of projects. They would raise money for veterans who were blind. Um, they would visit veterans in the hospitals. They raised all sorts of different funds, but they, they didn't just focus on money. They actually helped out. Um, you know, they would go visit female veterans in hospitals. They had pen pal programs. So these women really were committed to ensuring that the people left behind after the war would not be struggling on their own. And particularly during the Great Depression, when funds were so limited, they just made decisions. We're going to forego spending whatever money we could raise on a memorial, and we're going to spend it instead on people who really need help, people who suffered in the war. And that, they said, is the best way to honor the memory of those who died. That that's that's amazing. That that's really um I find that very insightful and very very forward thinking, you know. Um, you know, to, to to remember like it's not just the 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 man in uniform, it's the family behind him as well. And just thinking of um you know the the time late nineteen teens, early nineteen twenties, it you know, it must not have been easy for a um the, the wife of a wounded soldier to, you know, just, just go out and get a job and, and now become the main breadwinner for the family. So that's, wow, that's, that's incredible. Um, inspirational because they were quite selfless a lot of the time with what they did. And we'll probably get to this, but because they chose these types of memorial projects that were not visible, that were not long lasting or permanent, a lot of their contributions were really just erased, but that's not what they were focused on. They were so dedicated to helping the victims of the war and helping their communities. And I, I really, I just, I think there's a lot that we can learn today in our society from their approach to commemoration. All right. Who was, who was considered a veteran to uh, many of these women and, and the groups they were a part of? Um, and two part here, uh, who were some of these women who served? You've taken us to the second part of the title, so, or the first part of the title. Okay. We're talking about the forgotten veterans now, and before we were talking about the invisible memorials. So the forgotten veterans. These women who were veteranists, they included a wide range of women women who served formally in or with the military and women who did not. Um, so just as a primer for everybody on American women's service in World War I. Within the actual military, American women served in the Army Nurse Corps and the Navy Nurse Corps. They were fully in the military. They had full active duty service and they were veterans according to the government's definition after the war even though they did not actually have equal rank or full standing like men did, which is a very complicated topic, essentially, they didn't have full rank or authority over men, but they were still in the military. And then the Navy and the Marine Corps actually allowed women to fully enlist. And there were two women in the Coast Guard, just, just two as far as historians think. So the Secretary of the Navy, Josephus Daniels, um, 
he and his staff were able to find a loophole in the law and they were able to exploit that and argue that women could enlist in the US Navy in order to free up men for ship duty. So women joined the Navy as Yeoman F, the F is in parentheses, stands for female, and then there were female Marines. And these were the first women in the history of the United States to be fully and officially enlisted in the military with actual rank and status. This was a really groundbreaking moment. Of course, they were all kicked out of the Navy and Marine Corps after the war ended, but they were fully in military service. It's a really amazing study, and there's been a lot of work um, done on them, particularly by my friend, uh, Dr. Regina Akers at the Navy History and Heritage Command, and you can find a lot of her work for free online if you wanna learn more. Okay. So those, yeah, those were the women that were officially in the military. And then you had a group of women who served in uniform, who took an oath, and were often sent overseas, but they were not officially in the military. Most famously are the Hello Girls, who we talked about on a previous episode. They yep. were civilian employees of the U.S. Army's Signal Corps, and they were telephone operators. But there were also other women in similar situations, such as the Reconstruction aides, who were physical and occupational therapists who were employed by the army in uniform and under oath. But there were dietitians, other women in this situation. They were not actually in the military. They were kind of like contractors today, um, but their whole status was not clear to them at the time. So most of them did not understand during the war that they were not in the military. And this became critical after the war because it meant they were ineligible for any government veterans benefits hospitalization, medical care, burial in a national cemetery, and later on, the bonus. And this becomes a big part of the story of these forgotten veterans in the book of how these women fought to try and get the government to give them the military and veteran status they believed they had earned during the war. So that's a second group of women. Then there's a third group of women, and these were women who were volunteers or civilians working with the military or civilian service organizations like the YMCA, um, the YWCA, the Christian, um, the Christian organizations like the Catholic War Council, the Jewish Welfare Board. It was very clear to these women that they were not in the military. Many of them were volunteers. They were in uniform, but they knew their status, but they too still served. So after the war, a lot of these women came home or from either overseas or from their, wherever they were based in the US. And they were not necessarily ready to just say, okay, I've done my bit, send me back to the kitchen. These women wanted to continue serving and they had created their own identities as female service members during the war. Even if they were not officially in the military, they considered themselves to be veterans. And that's where in the book I talk a lot about the term unrecognized veterans. Women who for all purposes were veterans of the war, but were never recognized as such, mostly during their lifetimes. So they banded together and they created veterans organizations. Most of these women could not join the veterans of foreign wars or the American Legion. A few of them could, the ones who were officially in service, but most of them couldn't. And they wanted that support system they wanted that community and they wanted that identity. And those are the organizations that really became the 
places where these women would pursue their veteranist ideas for commemoration. All right. So I think you've um, kind of answered my my next question that I had for you here was okay. that that you talk about the several activist groups of women mentioned in um, Forgotten Veterans and Visible Memorials, the uh, WOSL Women's Overseas Service League, the WWRAA, um, the meaning of which escapes me right now. I apologize. Um, um, correct. The A AWM, the American War Mothers, American War Mothers, uh, amongst others. Um, now, so my question to you was like, why wasn't there just one overarching overarching group that would encompass all women? But but they're you know they made distinctions with their service. Like some of them, as you said, were recognized by the military. Um, others were were not, and others knew that they were not that they were just you know volunteering. Um, is that pretty much it? Like why why there were several groups? Uh, it's a little bit more nuanced than that. So to give some context. At the time, in the late 19th and through the early 20th century, there was a big culture of civic organizations in the United States. And there's been a lot written about this by other historians. Okay. So people were, many people were just more involved in organizations than I, I think some of us are today. So it's not really too surprising that they got a little bit specific with the organizations they were creating. What they were doing was they were building communities based on the communities they had before the war. One of the most important groups for these women was the Women's Overseas Service League, the WOSL. And that group was open to any woman who had served overseas during the period they defined as the war. So it could be overseas as a volunteer, overseas officially in the military, working for the military, as long as you served overseas for the Allies and you were living in the U.S. at the time of the organization's creation in the 20s, you could join. So they really identified by their overseas service and they felt like that distinguished them from women who were working at home, women who were rolling bandages. Not that they were trying to denigrate those women's contributions, mm -hmm. but that their experiences over there just like the Doughboys who went over there, really differentiated them. And that created a very strong bond among them. So within the Women's Overseas Service League, you had women like the Hello Girls. You had women like the Reconstruction Aides. You had women from the American Red Cross. You had all sorts of different women who went over and served with dozens of organizations. So that was the Women's Overseas Service League. And then with the World War Reconstruction AIDS Association, which is a mouthful, these women really loved their acronyms. <laughs> I didn't make that one up. That was them. Um, they were identifying themselves by their profession, by being what we call today physical and occupational therapists. At the time, it was called reconstruction. And it makes sense if you think that they were reconstructing the bodies of people. Right. So these women, many of them could be members in both organizations. Um, if they served overseas as a reconstruction aide, they could also be in the Women's Overseas Service League. Okay. But they really identified themselves based on their pioneering service and development of the fields of physical and occupational therapy. 
And if you talk to any physical or occupational therapists today, and you mention these women to them, they're actually going to have heard about them. Really? I, I have tested this out with many of my physical therapists over the years. And these women were considered part of the founding generation of the fields of physical and occupational therapy. Oh, so wow. they, a lot of physical and occupational therapists actually learn about these women, not in detail, but when they're in school and they're learning about where this profession came from, it came from a lot of the work done during and after World War I, much of which was led by these women. And the reconstruction aides were very clear on what they were doing and what they were building. So they identified based on that. Then the other, one of the other organizations you mentioned among the others in the book is the American War Mothers. And they're quite different than the Reconstruction Aids and the Women's Overseas Service League. That organization began during the war as a way to unite the mothers of service members. Okay. So it was really a way for these women to do community service and support their children during the war. But after the war, they, they didn't want to just give it up. So they shifted a bit and they really focused on commemorative activities, community service, and supporting other war mothers. So most of these women were never really serving at all, but they, in the formal sense, but right. they considered that raising a child and sending them to the military was a service and a sacrifice for the nation. So they banded together based on that and they thought it gave them a mission to help others and continue that purpose. And this is another organization where there was some cross membership. The American War Mothers, you didn't have to lose a child in the war. But there were many members who were gold star mothers, and those were women who did lose a child in the war. And they had their own organizations, but there was a lot of cross membership between and among those. Wow, I, I love as you're as you're describing these groups again, like um, just as you mentioned earlier, the the that continued focus on serving and community service, um, very very commendable. And I, I I know you said it as well, um, but yeah, definitely something we can learn from them for today. So um, really, re really a uh, just an incredible group group of people. Um, so the the Women's Over Service League. Um, We've talked about that. And so I, um, I've got here, uh, what was its mission of service to the living? The Women's Overseas Service League, they actually said in their documents, and, and hopefully I quote it correctly, the best memorial to the dead is service to the living. So they were really the most unconventional of all the women I studied, the most avant-garde. They flat out rejected offers to participate in traditional statues. And there's this great interaction between them and the women of the American Red Cross, who I talk about in a different chapter. Um, there's this amazing Red Cross headquarters in DC, right by the White House off of 17th Street. And there's one building of their headquarters that's a memorial to the women of the Civil War. It's a living memorial. And then next to it, there's the memorial building to the women of the World War which was created in the 1920s and 1930s, again, as a living memorial to honor women who served and supported the war effort. And the Red Cross, um, many members of which were part of the Women's Overseas Service League, were desperately begging the League to donate money 
to help create this living memorial. And the really cool thing about this building, and if anybody goes there, you can actually go check it out for yourself. It's neoclassical and there's columns all around it. And at the bottom of the columns are inscriptions because organizations could send a donation and get a column dedicated and inscribed just to their organization. And the Red Cross really wanted the Women's Overseas Service League to pay $5,000 and, oh, excuse me, donate $5,000 yep. and yep. get one of these columns. And there's this incredible correspondence back and forth, back and forth. And the league just keeps saying, we love what you're doing. This is paraphrased. But we just can't justify spending that money when there are so many female veterans who are struggling, when there are so many men who need our help. And they never did buy the column. It shows how important the league was that the Red Cross women kept going back. And to this day, there is only one column on the facade of that building that is blank. And I don't have proof for this, but I just keep wondering, was that where they wanted the Women's Overseas Service League's column inscription to go? Why is there only one that is blank? So that's, I think, the this best example of what really made the Women's Overseas Service League stand out. And eventually they opened up membership to World War II veterans, Korean War veterans, Vietnam veterans. They still have a website. I've tried to get in touch with them with no luck, so I, I don't know how active they are today, but they're a really cool group. Wow. God, I, I, I love that about the uh, the column, the uninscribed column. Like, it, it there's just... There's a story everywhere if you, if you just know if you just know about it you know so i i hope to um to see that building like go check it out the the next time i'm in i'm in dc that's that's so cool it's a field trip. yeah yeah definitely we can we can duck out of the um conference and <laughs> yeah yeah that sounds cool that sounds great <laughs> um so you you also spoke about the wwraa the reconstruction aids association um and um, anything further that you wanted to add to uh, about them, about how they uh, distinguish themselves from, from other uh, women's groups? The important thing about the Reconstruction AIDS is that they fought really hard to try and get recognition of veterans as being veterans, and they pretty much met with no success. And they very clearly understood as I found in their writings, that they were being forgotten, that they were being overlooked. It's really heartbreaking to read what they were writing to each other in their correspondence. They could see their memory vanishing and they pretty much lost hope after World War II that they would ever get veteran status. The organization disbanded after World War II. It's, it's a really sad story. And it wasn't until the 1980s that they were recognized as having been on active service but by that time, most of them were no longer living. Um, and I think what I want listeners to come away with is an understanding that when we talk about the Hello Girls and the Hello Girls struggle over decades for recognition and veterans benefits, they are just the most famous example of these women. They are the tip of the iceberg. There are so many other women who were their colleagues and oftentimes their, their friends, their fellow members of organizations who were in the same situation. Um, 
and I know this isn't a podcast about the Hello Girls, but I'm really passionate about them and I can't help myself. No, I no see, worries. I see the effort that we talked about to award the gold, Congressional Gold Medal to the Hello Girls mm -hmm. as a way to actually recognize this entire community of forgotten and unrecognized veterans. I think it's unfortunately unrealistic to think that we can get a gold medal for every group of these women. Mm -hmm. But if we can get the gold medal for the Hello Girls, I think that those of us who are really active in that fight, in that campaign, we can use that as a way to interpret the rest of that community. And maybe, even though they're not here anymore, we can give them some of the recognition that they deserve. That won't take care of the fact that they didn't have the veterans' health benefits that they needed, that they couldn't get admitted to veterans' hospitals, that they didn't get their bonus, that they couldn't be buried with a headstone that denoted that they were a veteran, but it's something. It's something that we can do. Right. And I, I believe many of these women, um, while they were, you know, fighting and, you know, and by fighting, I, I mean, advocating for for veterans' rights and, and recognition, they also, you know, they were fighting for themselves and, and other women who had served, but they were also fighting for, like, um, future women who who would serve. And of course, you know, th those future women did come and serve during the next world war. Um, so that's, that's, yeah, that's, that's really, um, again, that that commitment to community service and, and selfless service um, of trying to, you know, obviously, like, recognize themselves, but also trying to take care of the, the future groups, um, future generations. So wow. exactly. And I think, you know, a lot of us who listen to your podcast, we're sold on World War One anyway. But if you need to really convince people why World War One is important, it really is what happened in its aftermath that so deeply impacts the World War II generation and honestly future generations of military veterans up until today. Um, so these women were really pushing to make sure that what they experienced and how they suffered would not be repeated by the next generation. And in the book, there's quotes where they essentially say just that in, in different words. They wanted to make sure that reconstruction aids would become part of the military and they succeeded. Emma Vogel, who was one of those reconstruction aides um, who served as a civilian, she eventually ended up going into the army as a fully fledged service member and leading the Women's Medical Specialists Corps and basically becoming the face and voice for army female physical and occupational therapists. These women pushed and advocated on Capitol Hill desperately during the early years of World War II and beyond before to make sure that women would get status in the military. The Women's Auxiliary Army Corps, the Women's Army Corps, which are both acronyms of the WAC, so the WAC and the WAC, W-A-A-C and W-A-C, mm -hmm. those organizations were created because World War I women, including women in Congress, um, like Representative Edith Norse Rogers, who was one of these women who served, they went and they said, we cannot let this happen again. And it was not an immediate victory, but they did get there. And all of their work eventually led in 1948 to the passage of the Women's Armed Services Integration Act, which actually enabled women to have a permanent sort of equal place in the military with a ton of restrictions on them that were still unfairly based on gender. Right. But 
that moment in 1948, which was led by many World War I women. Another one was um, Captain Joy Bright Hancock, who was a Navy Yeoman F in World War I and went on to have a really long career in the Navy. That act, that legislation, is why we have so many more generations of female service members today. So if you're a female service member out there listening to this, these World War I women, many of whom did not get the benefits they wanted, they're responsible for creating these opportunities for women to serve in the military. Um, your 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 comments make me think of um, a cartoon that's in your book, um, and I'll try and describe it to listeners. But of course, the the best way is for folks to go out and and get Dr. Finkelstein's book, which we'll we'll talk about at the end here. Um, but inside there is a cartoon, and it is um, of an an older woman wearing her World War One service uniform, and in fact, I love how in the back they put the little detail of the the sewn on patch. Um, and she's making donuts for the, you know, for the GIs. And there's even two World War II era younger women off to the side, kind of looking a little like, like what what's happening here? But like, um, you know, that older woman, like, hey, I've done this before. And, uh, you know, goes steps right back into those shoes, literally. And, you know, the uniform and goes right back to work um, again, serving, um, you know, serving the community, ser serving the troops. Um, and also like um, serving those those that younger generation off to the side. So I, I really like that that little cartoon that that's in there. Um, amazing. Um, General John Pershing, Blackjack Pershing. Um, he also played some role in 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 this. Um, how did he see the wartime service of these various groups? in his post-war interaction with them. We, you know, with the podcast we did on the Hello Girls, we've talked about, you know, how how highly he he thought of the Hello Girls. Um, how about with with these these other groups, the WOSL, the Reconstruction AIDS, and and um the the American War Mothers? These women, many of them really worshipped General Pershing. They really admired him, they really respected him. And they hoped that he could be a voice to advocate for them. And there's instances in the book where some of these women actually wrote to him you know, about the situation. You know, we thought we were veterans. What can you do? And he wrote back, I'm not going to remember the exact quote, but it was something along the lines of, we're so grateful for your service. You were indispensable. But unfortunately, that's just the situation. Can't change the rules and regulations. So... Yeah. While Pershing was effusive at times in his respect and praise for all of the women who supported the military, particularly those who served overseas and were supporting the American Expeditionary Forces, the AEF, I have not found any evidence yet of him really sticking his neck out for these women. And unfortunately, that's true of a lot of other men in power. These women, through their advocacy, their memorialization work in the form of advocacy, they wrote to representatives and they wrote to senators and they would get these wonderful letters back saying how great they were. Thank you so much for everything you did. But honestly, this is just a losing fight. Yeah, that's, that's unfortunate. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's really unfortunate. Um, these groups, Women's Overseas Service League, the reconstruction aids 
Um, any of these organizations, um, do they still exist today? I know I know you mentioned one earlier. Was it WSL that, that you had reached out to them? I haven't been able to get anybody from the Women's Overseas Service League to get in touch with me. If anybody out there can help, please, please let me know. Um, they still had a website. Um, the Reconstruction Aids disbanded in the 1948. Uh, the American Red Cross is obviously still around and, and thriving. Um, and they have a wonderful archive that I did some great research in. So I'm very grateful to them. I was able to talk to them. Um, the American War Mothers, I haven't been able to reach them either. Okay. I think I also found a website and couldn't get anybody in touch. Um, but the Gold Star Mothers are still around um, in a formats have changed, but the Gold Star Mothers are still active. Um, I've been in touch with some of them. They're still really committed um, to honoring the memory of their children, which is what the women of World War I hoped would never have to happen. Those women really hoped it would be the war to end all wars, and of course we know that's not what happened. But the Gold Star Mothers and now the Gold Star Widows, um, very active um, and very well organized today. Um, they still do memorial services and, and all sorts of events. Um, so they have a really strong legacy that remains, and it's deeply connected to its origins in the First World War. And um, last question here. There is a, I, I think, a fairly well-known living memorial that um, many Americans could readily identify um, and this was really interesting to find out about um, in your book is um, how did the women of World War I help make the World War II era GI Bill happen? And yes, for listeners, yes, I'm talking about that GI Bill that many of us, um, myself included, have have uh, been able to go to college um, thanks, thanks to that. So um, Thank you to the women of World War One for helping me, <laughs> helping make that happen, and 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 wow, even helping me years, decades, decades after the fact. How how did um how did those 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 veteranist women help help push that that idea of the GI Bill? I'm so glad you brought that up because it's a really important story, not just about the women, but about the legacy of World War One and how it still impacts us today, and including yourself in such an important way. Um, so when I looked at this, I started with um, the work of Jennifer Keene, uh, who's a, just a fantastic scholar. And I think it's towards the end of um, her book, Doughboys and the Making of America. Okay. I think that's the title. Hopefully I'm not butchering it. She talks about the GI Bill and how many of the members of Congress who were involved in its creation were World War I veterans. So I built upon um, Dr. Keene's excellent work. And I dug a little bit in, and I, I found that one of the women I had been talking about all along, Edith Norse Rogers, was okay. the one woman to be in that group of men pushing for and creating the GI Bill. So Edith Norse Rogers was from Massachusetts. Um, she served overseas during World War I, um, not with the military. So in those voluntary organizations, I believe the American Red Cross and one other. Um, her husband served in Congress. When he passed away, she ended up running for his seat and was elected. And she became known as this very staunch advocate 
for veterans. She had had several positions um, helping with veterans, particularly those at Walter Reed, before she was elected to Congress. But once in Congress, she was a voice for veterans. And when I was looking through her papers, so many veterans were writing to her, asking, will you help with this? We're coming to you because we know that you are there for us. So she based all of this on her own service and interaction during World War I and in its aftermath. So at the same time that she was advocating and leading the effort for the creation of the Women's Army Auxiliary Corps and later the Women's Army Corps, the WAC and the WAC that we talked about earlier, she was also playing a major role in the group that led to the creation of the GI Bill. She is such a monumental figure um, who I don't think gets enough um, attention for the contributions that she made. She also did some really important work um, trying to help save um, children during the Holocaust, um, which is a completely different story with another sad ending. Sure. Um, but she, she wanted to learn from what she saw over there. And she wanted to learn from what veterans, male and female, were telling her. And the GI Bill was another opportunity. And it fits so exactly into this mentality of veteranism. That the way you can memorialize these service members from World War I and World War II is helping them build better lives. So that people like my grandfathers could benefit from the World War II GI Bill, all the way down to folks like you and even the youngest generation of veterans. This is all traced back to World War I because even on a larger scale, World War I is the catalyst for the creation of the modern day veterans welfare state. There's a lot of great work on this um, going back to the Civil War as the big turning point mm -hmm. and then the 20th century turning point is World War I. So if you're a veteran, all of those benefits you're getting you need to look back to those men from the Civil War and those men and women from World War I and, and that's what really enabled these benefits to come to you. Fascinating. All of this is is within your book. Um, this is this is amazing. Thank thank you so much. Um, yeah, thank you so much for for coming on and and um, talking about about your book. And so, folks, um, the book again is "Forgotten Veterans: Invisible Memorials: How American Women Commemorated the Great War." 1917 through 1945. Awesome. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I have it in the back, but that's way better. Great. Um, and it is out wherever books are sold. A link to the book will be provided in the episode notes. And I will say here, we will also add, I'm just, let me just call up the chat here really quick. Um, and I can share a promo code. Oh my God. Yeah. So the promo code for the book is BATTLE, B-A-T-T-L-E-2-4. Um, and so that's for exclusively for BFWWP listeners. So just for us, folks, that's so very kind. Um, this will unlock a 30% discount on either format of your book, uh, as long as you order directly from uh, University of Alabama Press. I'll have the link in the episode notes. I'll have the promo code in there as well. So thank you so much for that, uh, Dr. Finkelstein. Um, so folks, if you are interested in the impact of women serving in the American military, you will need a copy of this excellent work. And um, yeah, thank you so much again for coming 
on and for taking time out of your out of your evening, Dr. Fingerstein. Thank you. Oh, thank, thank you so much. I'm really grateful. I want to thank the University of Alabama Press for the discount code. And I'm just so appreciative of any opportunity to talk about these women in the hopes that more people will learn about them. And come Veterans Day or Memorial Day, maybe you can include them in, in what you're thinking about or the commemorative activities you're doing, or maybe take a little inspiration and go help a veteran, go visit a veterans hospital go clean some headstones or or find somebody who's served that could use a little bit of friendship or care and and do that. Exactly. So thank you. Exactly, exactly. All living memorials. Very, very good. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. And um, hope to see you soon.